Welcome again uh, to Anchor. I, I want to I wanna amplify and repeat Matt's welcome to everyone here, especially if this is your first time. We're really excited for you to be here with us, and we would love uh, for you to stick around for uh, a morning tea afterwards. So uh, please stick, or afternoon tea afterwards, uh, so please stick around with us. My name's Arnaldo. I'm from the uh, Dulwich Hill Gospel Community. And... There you go. There you go. <laughs> they're, they're, they're a fun bunch. And... Uh, I, I want to say, you know, I'm, I'm super excited to uh, be speaking today, but I'm super excited to be spending seven weeks uh, as, as a preaching team, as a teaching team, uh, to look at who the Holy Spirit is. Because a lot of us, uh, when, when we think about God, we think, you know, God the Father, uh, uh, God the Son, and, and the Holy who? And we think, who, who is the Holy Spirit? Who, who is He? What does He do? Uh, is He a force? And, and throughout these weeks, uh, we want to continually uh, uh, just almost just clear, clear some way here so we can have some clarity and some uh, purpose uh, and so we can understand who he is, how he works, and what our part then is in response to the Holy Spirit in this world. So that's what we'll be doing. And today, Matt uh, mentioned that I'll be preaching uh, quite um, uh, largely. We're, we're going through Genesis, Genesis through Revelation, uh, looking at the presence of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it look like? And, and what does it look like for us to be a people who are indwelt, who, are, uh, uh, who have God, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us? What does that mean? And we'll be looking at uh, an, uh, a text in John uh, 16, and I'll ask you to go there a bit later. But before I do so, I'm going to pray because I definitely need help. Uh, to remember the things that I should remember and to forget the things that are not going to serve you well today. And you definitely need help to listen to me. So let's pray. Father, we thank you now. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you are for us in Christ. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans by the road, but you have collected us. You have cleaned us up. You have given us a home in your family, and you sustain us. You feed us, and you are with us and we thank you for all those magnificent truths. And we, Lord, we repent. We, we say sorry for the times that we don't remember that. We, we, we say sorry for the times that we don't live that out. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to continually be with us and fill us so that we can be the people who you are creating to be in this world and for this world. So, Father, I ask you now to help me to forget the things that will not be helpful, but to remember the things that will be for your people, for your namesake, and for our joy in obedience to you. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we'll be looking at John 16 just a little bit later, so it'll be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can put your finger there. Uh, I, there are a few things in this world that are more important than presence. And I'm not talking about the presence that you get during Christmas and birthdays and weddings. I'm talking about the presence of one person to another. And oftentimes what we see in this world, and maybe many of you have grown up with parents who will substitute their presence, their being with you, their being with you and for you with presents, with giving you stuff. And at the end of the day, listen, when, when we're on our deathbeds, if we have the grace to, to, be, uh, to have our minds and, and we think back on our lives, we're not going to think about all the things that people have given us. We're going to think about the times that we've spent together. 
You know, in my short time of, of uh, helping people and speaking with people and trying to speak the gospel to people, oftentimes we don't need words that will lift us up sometimes. Sometimes we don't need advice. Sometimes the most potent thing that you can give someone is your presence, your quiet, still presence. And as we grow older and as more suffering comes our way, we'll notice that presence is an extremely powerful thing. I remember uh, last year I went to New York um, by myself. I have a wife and three young children, and she was kind enough to say, you go and see your family. I hadn't been there for about five years. And I went for about 10 days. And during this time, uh, my little girl, who was about uh, eight or so months then, uh, caught pneumonia. And she was in the hospital, she was on, you know, on, on oxygen, and, and, and I wasn't there. I, I, just, I wasn't there. And, and uh, I felt terrible, uh, but Catherine would continually reassure me, it's okay, it's, she's going to be okay, so don't stress out too much. But what she found, you know, I, I would send flowers and fruit baskets and all these things, and, and they were helpful, but what she found to be the most helpful thing that she received in the days that she was in hospital with, uh, with Evie was uh, someone from our GC was able to just go and sit with her for about half an hour and just sat there with her. I mean, you know, we, I could have sent a Maserati, which I couldn't anyway, but I, you know, I could have sent Benzes and Beamers and, you know, I could have said, look, this is the land deed to our new home. That would have meant nothing. But half an hour of someone's presence with her while she was going through a tough and lonely time meant the world to her, and it carried her through because presence, more so than presence that we receive, is actually the true story of the world. The whole story of the world, the whole story of Scripture can be summed up like this. Uh, theologian Scott McKnight says uh, that the, the, uh, the entire Bible can be summed up as the story of the witness of God. The whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation can be summed up in this, that God desires to be with his people. I mean, there's so many themes in the scriptures, you know, justification and, 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 and who God is and all these, all these things that come out in the Bible. But under, over rather, all of that, over all of that is this, the witness of God, God's presence and that's the story we'll be looking at today from Genesis to Revelation. But we'll be looking at it from, from a different angle. If God's whole story is about being with his people, then what we'll read in, in, in John chapter 16 is going to seem perplexing and troubling. So if you want to turn there with me, John chapter 16. And if you grab the Bible on your way in, and this is your first time opening a Bible, when I say chapter, that's the large number on the page, and the verse is the smaller number. So I'm going to ch John the gospel according to John chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. I have, Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? 
But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, and this is our text for today, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, whole, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, <clears throat> I will send him to you. I'm, I'm going to read that last verse again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I mean, could you imagine what his disciples would have felt? You know, Peter was one of his best friends. Uh, He had 12 disciples, and then he had an inner ring of three, and then he had a best friend, John. But can you imagine? I mean, you know, they were rolling with Jesus for about three years now. Their lives were turned completely upside down. They were fishermen, they were workers, there were some, you know, there was a tax collector in there. And then you have this Jewish uh, uh, homeless rabbi who says, hey, come follow me. They follow him and their lives are turned completely upside down. I mean, can you imagine the feeling that they would have felt when they heard this? I mean, they partied with him. You know, they ate with him. They experienced exorcisms with him. They experienced, uh, uh, you know a little boy with a few loaves of fish and some bread, and he fed thousands of people. The Bible says that on two occasions he fed 4,000 and on another 5,000, and that's just counting the men. You know, some scholars say it was upwards of ten to 15,000 each time with a couple fish and a couple of, I mean, they saw this. They were with him. Peter was with him when he was standing on the mountain, and he saw his body shine brighter than the sun, being transfigured, the Bible says. And he saw this, and then you can imagine what they were thinking, right? They're thinking, we've seen this in about three years. Imagine the next five years. Come on, guys, let's get together. We're going we're gonna to have a five-year plan. We'll see what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to stretch these borders. We're going to go to other lands. We're going to go to... And then Jesus drops the bomb. And he says, it's, it's better for you. This New Testament uh, scholar, Dale Bruner, He says, you can translate this text like this. The best thing that could ever happen to you is for me to go away. I mean, it sounds like a bad breakup. I I don't know if you've ever experienced that or if you've definitely heard of it. The, it's not you, it's me. I've got it because God's got something better for you. So I'm going to go away. I remember uh, I did that one time. And... uh, Catherine and I, we've been married for nearly a decade now, and uh, we were long distance for four or so years. It was very difficult. And we'd spent physically six weeks together uh, in the span of about four years before we got married. The third time we met, we were married. And, and before the second time I was to come out to, uh, to Sydney, uh, I called her up three days before um, my plane. Yeah, I had commitment issues. And I said, hey, God's got something better for you. I'm not coming. Yeah, it was just such a, such a lame excuse. And, and when, I, when I was reading this, I thought, Jesus, are you just giving this lame excuse? Saying, it's not you guys. I like you guys, but I've got to go. And it says that, that sorrow filled their hearts. You can, you can also say that depression filled their hearts. You know, Jesus would have said, I've got to go. And Peter said, okay, I'll see you later. You know, see you tomorrow at the temple. Hang out. Bash some Pharisees, right? Is that what we... Is that, is that what we're doing tomorrow? I'll, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow? Said, no, no, I, I got, I'm, I'm going. Oh, okay, I'll, ne- next week? Are you going away? Like, what's, ha- what, like what's happening? 
No, no, I'm going. I'm leaving. Because if I don't leave, I cannot send the helper. And this makes absolute no sense. I don't know if it makes sense to you. Chances are you're smarter than I am. But until I actually looked at the whole story of God and what he's doing, this didn't make sense. And I wonder if many of us, if we were to be honest with, with ourselves here today. Don't raise your hand. Don't respond. I don't want you to self-condemn yourself. But if we were given a choice... And the choice was, would you rather have the Holy Spirit living inside of you or have Jesus pull those curtains back and we see him? What would you say? Many of us, if not every single one of us, would say, give me Jesus. I want Jesus here. I want him in the front row. I want to hear him. You know, I, I want him to say, hey, good job on that. We want to see him. We want to touch him. We want to be with him. And so often, I, I would venture to say that each and every one of us would say, give me Jesus' presence next to me. Because we just don't grasp the magnitude and the beauty of Jesus within us. We don't get that. So we're going to go to the back. We're, we're going to go to the beginning. Genesis 1 two and three in the garden. And in the garden, uh, it says that God was with his people. He created Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden to work and to have sex and to procreate and to have fun and to fill the earth. That's, that's the beginning story of the world. Have fun. Fill the world. Have dominion. Take care of this earth. I'm with you. And in fact, it says that God would, would often, it was, a, it was a regular practice for him to be walking with them in the cool of the day, it says. He was with them. You know, who, who knows what they did? He got a picnic basket, hanging, you know, let, let's go into the street, let's hang out, let's talk. What have you been up to? God was with his people. He loved being with his people. But this is the problem. People weren't content to be with God. They wanted to be God. They didn't think it enough that God was with them. They wanted to be him. They wanted to make their own rules. So what happens? They are kicked out of the garden because they said, we prefer to make our own rules. We prefer to be our own people. We prefer to choose for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. The great sin of the world is not that they ate an apple or a mandarin or whatever it was, a mango. The great sin of the world is that we want to be separate from him. We want to be autonomous. We want to be our own people. We don't want to depend on him. And that is the sin of Adam and Eve. That's the sin of Adam and Eve. And they are ejected from the garden. There's already a problem. You know, three chapters, I mean, listen, three chapters into the story of God, and they've already screwed up. And if any one of us, here, is sitting, is sitting here and thinking, if it was me, I'd have made it to at, at least chapter 7. <laughs> Let me tell you, they would have written the book, I, I, you know, it would have been the preface for me. It would have been the intro, you know, before chapter 1. And if we ever think that in our hearts of hearts, there's not that seed of independence, of autonomous from God, then we are fooling ourselves. We, are, we were there with them as they rejected God as their God and Savior, but sin, so sin gets in the middle of this withness with God. So what does he do? 
chapters later, uh, he creates a people for himself through this man called Abraham, or Abram, who later on is called Abraham. He uh, creates a people, and he gives them a promise. He says, listen, I know you're just one man over 100 years old, and your wife is very old. They, you know, even back then, they didn't ask her age. They just said she was very old. And he says, I will give you so many children that you can compare them to the sand on Bronte Beach, on Bondi Beach. Go, go to any beach. Try to count the sand. Look up into the night sky. Try to count those stars. I'm going to give you more kids than that at your age. And God fulfills his promise. God gives him son, Isaac, uh, uh, Isaac. And Isaac has a son called Jacob. And Jacob has the 12 tribes of Israel. And now God has a nation. But they go into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And he sends Moses to them as a liberator. And as he liberates them, and as they go into the desert because of their sin, they wandered for 40 years. Even after God secured their salvation, even after God said, it's not what you do, but what I have done. Even after God has shown them his grace and his mercy, they fall to worshiping an idol. We've all probably heard it. It's a story in our culture. Even if we're not familiar with the Bible, we probably would have heard about a golden calf. That's familiar in our cultural language, a golden calf. And what the Israelites did is they worshiped a golden calf. And God led them to, to wander in the desert for 40 years. But what did, he, what did he give them? He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them, a, and a tabernacle is basically this. If you think that bump in and bump out is hard, Come on. what they had to do, they had to construct an entire temple, an entire tabernacle, wherever they moved. And we're going to put out some chairs, right, some pencils. <laughs> we, we don't even want to collect them afterwards. Just put them in the tub. And they had to reconstruct this tabernacle everywhere they went for 40 years. And this was the message. I am with you. I'm for you. Even though sin has come between us, uh, me and you, I want to be with you. So he gives them this tabernacle. Forty years, they're wandering around. They're seeing miracles. Forty years, they're wandering around. They give them the he gives them the tabernacle. He gives them a, a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke to say, I'm protecting you. I'm with you. Yes, sin has gotten in the way, but I'm with you. I'm going to make a way to be with you. Wherever you go, God says, I'm with you. And this was the distinguishing mark of the people of God. Deuteronomy 4, 7, you don't need to turn there. It'll be behind me. It says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? I mean, this is the distinguishing mark of the people of God. God is with them. God is with you. They enter the land, Israelites, the next generation. They enter the land, and God gives a guy called Solomon a blueprint. He says, build this temple for me. And in the middle of the temple, because of sin, there was sort of a room called Holy of Holies. And his presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. 
And that was not a mark of wherever you go, I'm with you, because they knew that. But now this is a mark of his stability. I'm going nowhere. You're building something that cannot move, that will not move. And I'm for you. I'm stable. I mean, and that's why, you know, that's why a marriage covenant is so important and so beautiful. Now, we have uh, done damage to it in, in a great measure outside and inside the church. But it is a commitment to say, I am a commitment of stability. I'm with you. Not only wherever you go, but now I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. But we know, to no surprise, what happens? They sin. They worship other gods. They say, you do not fulfill us. You do not satisfy us. But this pile of brick and mortar or this pile of gold or this wooden statue that I have carved out with my own hands, that satisfies me. And that's what they did. There's this picture in Jeremiah, a prophet in the Old Testament. And he says, sin is like this. Sin is like you're, you're walking in the desert. And I'm thinking, was he, pro- he was probably thinking of the Israelites in the desert, in the desert for 40 years. As a picture of sin is this. You're walking in the desert. I mean, I, I've never been in a real desert. Um, but just imagine if you're there. And to your left, you see a spring coming out. I mean, fresh water. You haven't had a drink in, in, in over a day. You know, you're just on the brink of death. On the brink of death. And there's fresh water. And then you turn to your right. And you just see a, a, a pile of quicksand. And this is sin. Sin is looking at the water and saying, I don't want you. I'm going to go suck on some sand. That's what Jeremiah is saying. He says, you have not trusted me. God is saying through Jeremiah, you have not trusted me to satisfy your deepest needs and desires. And you go to things that will leave you completely unfulfilled. And that's what the Israelites did. And that's what we continually do. But God was still committed to be present with his people. He would, send, uh, he would send prophets. He sent Ezekiel, this guy Ezekiel, weird fellow. Um, and he sent messages to them. And he, he was saying, I'm going to make a new way. There's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a new way that I'm going to be with you. I'm going to not just give you my law and put it on you, but I'm going to write my law in your heart. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be, and some of us are in an exile right now of, of, our, of our own. Life changes. Maybe you, you're new here in Australia. Maybe, you, you, you know, this is a new place for you, and you feel like you're in exile. And God is saying, I'm with you. Joel was given another vision, another prophet. And he said, I'm going to pour my Holy Spirit out on every one of my people. See, in the Old Testament, what would happen is the Holy Spirit would come upon people. He would come upon you for a certain task, and then he would depart. And that's why David in Psalm 51:11 he says, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And Jeremiah, who I mentioned, he says in 29:11 he says, I am with you to save you. Even while they were in exile, even while they were away from their land, even while they thought that they were away from the presence of the holy God, he says, I am with you. And he brings them back to the land. And they build another temple, Temple 2.0. 
But this temple just doesn't fulfill what they thought it should have. So we go from the garden of God being with us through the desert of the tabernacle saying, I'm with you wherever you go. Through the temple saying, I am a picture of stability. Even through exile, while you are away from the temple, I am with you and back in the land. It falls short. It says the glory of this temple was supposed to supersede the glory of the former temple. And it just didn't happen. I want you to read this with me, with what happens next. We go from garden to tabernacle to temple to exile to temple. And he says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to read that again. And the word became flesh and tabernacled. That word, dwelt. It, it, if, if we want to uh, translate that, we can translate that as tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled against, uh, with us, among us. And what this was conjuring up in all of their minds when they read this, they said, oh, that God, the one who tabernacled with his people in the desert, the one who told Solomon to build a temple as a, as, as a picture of his stability, as the God who sent his people into exile and was still with them, as the God who brought his people back into the land, that God? How is it then? How is it then that that God who is so passionate, who, who, whose, whose desire throughout the entire history of humanity, I mean, do you get that? The entire history of humanity. How does he say, it is better for me to go away? That doesn't make any sense to me. Until we understand one thing. A friend of mine puts it like this. He says, my absence, this is what Jesus is saying to his people. He says, my absence will pave the way for another and deeper dimension of my presence. I'm going to read that again. My absence will pave the way. When I go, when I leave, I am going. I will pave the way for another and deeper dimension of my presence. God is not just content to be among us. God is not just content to be next to us. God wants union with us. He wants to be in us. That's amazing. I mean, this is the same God, right, who when he met Moses back in Exodus 3, second book of the Bible, he met Moses and he told him, you're going to go rescue my people. When he met him, he, was, he, he met him in a burning bush, he met him in a burning bush. And when Moses went to approach the burning bush, God said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Take off your shoes or sandals, whatever he was wearing. Take, take them off because where you're standing is holy ground. And it brought fear. When God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments on the mountain, there was fire and smoke billowing. And God said, if anyone touches this mountain, they will die. Because this is a holy mountain. That God, in Acts chapter 2, comes to his people through fire. It says in Acts chapter 2, when he poured out his Holy Spirit on his church, on his people, 
He came as tongues of flaming fire. And did they die? No. Were they made fearful? No, they were made bold. God's presence so much in the Old Testament brought fear. But now it brings boldness and security and love. And it it emboldens us. It makes us fearless, not fearful. And in the end, in the end, Revelation 21 and 22, it says that one day we'll be with him. I mean, I mean, listen, listen, listen. Get this. We, we have so many stories in our culture and in our own minds and even in some church experiences that you've had. We have so many stories that say that when we die, our bodies will go to nothing. And at the end of time, we'll be somewhere on a cloud playing a harp. And it'll be great for you musos, but I can't play. What am I going to do? And if I'm going to be honest with you, that sounds boring to me. Because that's not the vision of the scriptures. The scriptures say in Revelation 21, 22, not that we go up to heaven, but that heaven comes down to us. And that God dwells with his people. And that, he is, that his glory will be the sun. We will no longer need a sun. Because his glory will be with us. And there will be nothing in between us. This witness of God. God will overcome your own sin. And the sin of the world. To dwell with us. And that's, that's the story of the Bible. There's, a, there's a, another story in the Gospel of John. Where Mary Magdalene. She goes to the tomb early on Sunday morning, and she doesn't see anyone in the tomb, but she sees who she thinks is a gardener. And she says, where have they put his body? And the gardener says, Mary. And she realizes who he is. And she goes to him, and she squeezes him, and she holds him tight. And if we were to read the Bible dramatically, Jesus says, do not hold on to me. And sort of we say, you know, don't hold on to me. All passive. You know, the, the force of that text is, don't hold on to me so tight. Don't do that. Not because it hurt him. But he said, if you don't let me ascend to the Father, I have to ascend to the Father. Don't hold on to me because I have to leave. And Mary was thinking, this is my Lord, this is my God, and they took him away from me. I was without him for three days. He was dead, dying in a, in a tomb somewhere, and I was without him. And now that I found him, I'm never going to let him go. And what Jesus is saying, when I ascend, you will have me in ways that you cannot have me if you continue to hold on to my physical presence. See, Jesus was limited by his physicality. You know, we, we often think of Jesus, and it's all right and true. Right now, he is reigning. He is powerful. If we were to see him, we would, uh, we, I mean, I don't know what would, ha- if he were to show himself in all his glory, none of us would be able to survive that. He is glorious. But we forget that he was also, and still continues to be, 100% human. And he was limited by his physicality. He couldn't be everywhere with all his people at the same time. And when he says, I need to ascend, 
And what this text fills out for us in, 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 in verse 7 is, I need to ascend. Why? Because then I will send the helper. And the helper, what he does is not discontinuous with who Jesus is. So often we think the Holy Spirit's doing something totally and radically separate from Jesus. But what he's doing is he's deepening your experience and your life with Jesus because now he's no longer next to you. He's inside of you. And we live as if that's not true. I live as if that's not true. We have a pile of pass-through bills on our kitchen table and a billion dollars in the bank. And we'll be looking at, okay, well then, how do we experience this? How do we move on? And, and, and what we need to get first is the magnitude of Colossians 1 when he says, through all the ages and generations, there's this mystery that has been kept hidden, but revealed now. And what's that mystery? The mystery is God in you, Christ in you. Do you get that? Christ lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is better that I go away because I don't want to just be next to you. I want to be in you. I want to be within you. And it's crazy. It's crazy to think when we compare what Paul says about us in the New Testament and what uh, the Old Testament would say about the temple and the tabernacle. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says that we collectively use are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, that temple that they, they had to construct for, you know, and the second temple was in construction for over 40 years. He says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within you. And in 1 Corinthians 6, later on, he says, individually, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. Why? Because you know me, and I know you. And you know that I'm not sinless. Some of you more than others. And I know you have a mess in your life sometimes. How is it possible that the church, the people of God, can be indwelt by this holy God when in the Old Testament everything needed to be clean and purified and perfect and holy and even the utensils that they would use needed to be purified? How is it? There's two stories in the Gospel of John. And I'll stand over here to, to designate the first one. And the first one is the baptism of Jesus, right? And in the baptism of Jesus, Jesus goes to his cousin, John, and he goes, I'm going to, you know, baptize me. And John says, he, he baptize, he, you know, John baptizes him. And the, it says that the, the heavens tore open and a dove descended. And there was a booming voice. And, and it, the voice said this. It said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus went on in ministry and in love and in compassion and in force. But at the end of the Gospel of John, there's another story. And the other story ends up with Jesus not being praised, but hearing this. Nothing. And so often, and you know this, 
that the silence of someone else can be the greatest condemnation. Jesus heard nothing on the cross. How is it that in three years he can go from you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased to the silence, the condemnation of... How do you go from commendation, words of commendation, to the silence of condemnation? And the reason why the Holy Spirit can dwell in you today is not because you came here today. It's not because you read your Bible. It's not because you didn't look at pornography this week. It's not because you held your tongue at the office when they were gossiping. It's not because you fasted this week. It's not because you shared your faith this week. It's not because any of that. It's not because you memorized scripture. It's not because you contributed to your gospel community. It's not because you loved and rebuked and encouraged people in your gospel triplets. None of that. The reason why the Holy Spirit can dwell inside of you is because the silence of condemnation that you should have heard was put on him. So now you can stand over here. You can stand over here. You're not there anymore. You can stand here and you can hear this. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. You don't get to hear the silence of condemnation because he did. And while you do not deserve, and I do not deserve, the words of commendation, you hear them. And that is the only reason why the presence of God can come and dwell with us collectively and individually. That is amazing because what you do contributes nothing to the fact that God seeks to dwell with and in you. So what now? A couple of areas of application. The question is, and, and some, you know, some of the questions that have been flowing through is, okay, <clears throat> how do I access this? This, you know, uh, this presence of God in you, this power that I should call for, how do we, how do, we do that? How do, what, what are the implications of this? Three, <clears throat> one, you are never alone. What the, what the, what, so what is the question? So what? So what the Holy Spirit is with me? Is the question. You are never, uh, listen, you may feel like you're alone. Some of you are battling with depression. You are not alone. You don't need answers from me. You don't need theology from me in some, in some points of your life. You, you don't need, that's not what you need. What you need to know is God is near you. He's nearer to you than you are to yourself. He knows you more than you know yourself. You are never alone. When you're out there, moms, and you're battling these little kids, these little people, you're never alone. When you're at uni and you're struggling against ideologies and powers and principalities and temptation, you are not alone. When you're in blatant sin, this is where we expect to say, oh, well, God's not there. You are never alone. 
When you feel his presence, you are never alone. When you don't feel his presence, you are never alone. When you're out at work at the office, you are never alone. When you are at a hospital bed, you are never alone. You need to know that. Because that's life. You know, memes are not life. That's life. You're never alone. Number two, you can become like Christ. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you can become like him. In fact, before the foundations of the world, Romans 8.28 says that when he foreknew you, when he loved you in advance, he said, that one, I'm going to make him like Christ. You're predestined. You're made for this, y'all. You're made for this. This is what you do. This is who you are. You're made to be like Christ. And now, because you have the Holy Spirit in you, you get to be. Some of you are battling with addictions and besetting sins. And to one degree or another, we all are. Every single one of us. Every single one of us is battling. But you can become like Christ. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope because you have the Holy Spirit. He's always with you. And you have the power then to become like Christ. And finally, you have power. You have, I mean, listen, boy, the power that's living inside of you is like a million atomic bombs going off. And it's not going to look the same way for each and every one of us. Some people are just more reserved. Some people are more outspoken. But the power in you to face your trials and your tribulations and the mess of this world is in you. Not because of anything you've done but because of everything he's done. You're never alone, ever alone. Listen, you are never alone. You can become like Christ and you have power because of what he's done. I'm going to invite the band up now, but how do I access this? How do we do do this? And so often we think it has to look a certain way. Yeah, I grew up Pentecostal, and it looked a certain way. It, 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 was, it was very, very much uh, sometimes over the top, uh, but I appreciate my heritage, but it doesn't all have to look that way. But there's just two words that I want to leave you with. Two words. One is expectation, and the other one's encounter. Do you wake up in the morning... Tuesday morning, got to go into the office, got to go to work, got to go to school, got to go to uni, got to go to mom's group. Do you wake up in the morning expecting to encounter the Holy Spirit's power in your life? That's the question. Do I wake up thinking, okay, today, Holy Spirit, in quiet ways and in loud ways, I'm expecting you to encounter me. What I want to leave you with is not just that through this seven-week series, we get to encounter the Holy Spirit, but for the rest of our lives, while we're, at, you know, while we're playing, while we're hanging out, while we're here, we should expect to hear the voice of the Lord to us, not only in the Scriptures and ultimately in the Scriptures, but through, our, through each other, through our bodies, through nature. We can experience the Holy Spirit when we, uh, when we, when we expect to, and this is why, listen, this is why spiritual disciplines 
and spiritual practices and prayer and meeting in community is so incredibly important. A lot of us think that if we're called to do something, that I'm adding to the work of Christ. That as a response to grace, now I do nothing. But Dallas Willard said this. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude and effort is an action. And God calls us to act. 2 Peter 1, he says, God has given us everything that we need for, for godliness and salvation. Every single thing he has given to us as a gift of grace through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we expect the next verse to say, well, then you can do nothing. But he says, no, now work this out. And I invite you guys to think of ways that we can set time aside for prayer and for silence and for community. And that's why gospel communities are so important. That's why prayer is so important. That's why positioning ourselves to receive grace through word, through the table as we, you know, take of Jesus' blood and body, through friendship, we experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And the question is this, do you want it? Because this is all for nothing if you do not want to experience, if you do not want to expect, and if you do not want to encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to invite everyone to stand and sing with us. Because God is here. He's with you. He's listening to us. Not as someone who with his ears saying, I hope they get it right. But he's enjoying you. He loves you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be in you. Not only here, but throughout the week. So I invite you to sing with us as we sing to his glorious grace. And I invite you, listen, maybe the Lord has visited you today while I was speaking. Maybe the Lord has brought you to a place where you didn't consider yourself a Christian, but now you want to become one. You want to figure this out. There's going to be people in the back to pray for you, to love you. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you just need a loving touch on your shoulder of presence. Maybe you just need to be reminded that Christianity is just not about head knowledge, but it is about living this out. And it is about having God encounter you through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen, guys, he's with you. And as you go out, you don't leave church, you are the church. So I invite you guys to stand and pray and sing and cry and be with one another as the church because he is with us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans. We thank you that, Holy Spirit, you are with us. And you are extending what Jesus has done in the world to us and through us. So, Father, Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you blow through this place like an ax to. Lord, that we would see and experience your power in, 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 in uh, acts of great might and in the stillness of our hearts, that we can call you Abba, Father, and that the Holy Spirit would make that true for us. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.